0: Again, just reflecting on uh, Matthew 19, I ask you to go to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians for this morning's message, and uh, I have been doing a study uh, here on Sunday mornings and at uh, JMF Mark Staveney, where his offices are, gosh, we've been doing that Wednesday morning study for quite a while, and we've been in the book of Ephesians. And and I just want to make one statement, chapter 1 and verse 3. The entire book of Ephesians is about this statement. The entire book of Ephesians is about this statement. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and this is one of his prison epistles. He was in prison when he wrote the letter. Uh, If you go to the book of Acts, he spent over two years with the Ephesians, uh, studying with them daily as a result of one of his mission trips. And now he's an older man. Uh, he's much older. He is a prisoner uh, being held. He is asked to testify before uh, Caesar to make a defense of what he has been falsely accused of. And so he writes this great letter. And in chapter one, verse three, he says, Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the rest of the book we use that word blessing pretty sometimes flippantly in our Christian life and language and walk. But if you really truly wanted to just take a place in the scripture and diagram blessings, I'm just gonna do a topical study on blessings, Genesis through Malachi. This this letter is the premier place in scripture that you could just start with at verse three, go through the entire letter, and and the great doctrine that comes out of this this book uh, teaches us what those blessings are. They come from a God through Christ from the heavenly places, and that's really I want you to set your mind with that. I, I'm not going to recap everything, but I will say this: Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He taught religious law. I mean, he was a religious lawyer. He he taught uh, all the prophetic word, the wisdom literature, the pray, everything that was written in Genesis through Malachi. He n- not only learned it, but he learned it so that he could teach it and defend it. And so uh, this absolutely brilliant spiritual man who God had converted and saved on the road to Damascus and now inspired by the Holy Spirit, all of who he was, uh, God was using now in how he would use him in his ministry and mission trips and and even for the generations to come, you and I today in Curtin, Texas, reading this wonderful letter. and But he had a style because of all of his, who, who God made him to be. And you can see it in this, uh, you see it in all of his letters, where he, that religious lawyer comes out. The ability to understand scripture, defend scripture, teach scripture, um, and make a case. And so... He makes the statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and then he proves it as though he was before a court of law proving that. And so throughout the book, if you were to take a highlighter pen, he'll make a statement and you go down there to verse 15 of chapter one, he'd say, for this reason, and then you keep going through the book and he would make a statement, therefore... He'd make a statement, therefore, verse 11 of chapter 2, therefore. So remember. And then he would use these statements as he wrote the letter. Well, this is the truth about this. And so therefore, you should know this. And for this reason, you should live this way. That was his approach. This is his approach. This is what God did. This is how he blesses us. And so for this reason, you ought to live this way, and therefore, these are the things you ought to know. But he also uses another term. If you just started highlighting it, every time he uses the word but, B-U-T, so throughout all of his letters, he'd make a statement, therefore, for this reason, but then he would say but. Now, we just read out of Matthew in this chapter, this wonderful moment in the life of Jesus about this... uh, meeting with this rich young ruler and, and he wanted to know what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And, and, uh, and then what you'll find in scripture, every time you come across the word, but two things are about to happen every single time, something very, very, very encouraging or something very, very, very depressing. And, and so when you just look at that, uh, you know, that passage in Uh, Matthew 19, when Jesus said, well, this is the one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. The next statement is, but when he heard this, he went away sad because he was one that owned many possessions. And so then later on, again, reflecting on the passage, the apostles asked him, said, we've left everything. And it, But even before that, they said, well, then who can be saved? It was an impossible scenario. If you understand that, because Jesus would say, man, it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. And he said, not only if you don't understand how hard it is, it's harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle. And so the question was, well, then who can be saved? And there's that that but. So it was really... Depressing when the rich young ruler was confronted with a great truth. But when he heard this, he went away sad. Because he was one who owned much. Many possessions. And then when the first or when the apostles asked Jesus, well, who can be saved? At that scenario, because it's impossible. He says, but listen, you need to know something. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So I want you to think about this this morning because Paul creates eight scenarios. We're not going to do eight. We're just going to do three points this morning. But he creates three eight scenarios, but there's three scenarios in this letter to the Ephesians that should, they should resonate in our lives in, in such an impactful way that they are, in fact, the life-changing truths that God intended for us to understand. So... I'm going to begin in chapter two in verse one, this first, but so chapter two, Paul makes this statement about you and I, and I want you to think in terms of the possible and the impossible, because what Paul is going to do here is establish an impossible situation, literally an impossible situation that you and I and every human that has ever been born is confronted with. This is the impossibility that every human that has ever been born has been faced with this truth. This is an impossible truth for us. Impossible in light of one one thing. So chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul's talking about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that have come to us through God, our Father, through Jesus Christ. He's working through this letter. And as he talked about everything that God had done for us, chapter 1, He, him, his self, using all these personal pronouns about what God has done in chapter one. He shifts in chapter two, and he starts using the personal pronoun you, me, we. Now he's shifted. This is what God has done, and this is who you and I are. Now, I want us to try to measure the impact of this statement, the impossible situation that this leaves you and I in. Dead. Dead. What can you do when you're dead? Nothing. A dead man, a dead individual can do nothing. You're just dead. And, and the reason we're dead is because of our, my, your, our trespasses and sins. That's why we're dead. It's like the uh, I had a professor tell me one day, have you ever seen the movie... It was a series called The Walking Dead. I never really watched it. Don't want to watch it. Wouldn't really want to watch it. But apparently it's people, the flesh, they're they're dead, but they're walking around in their dead body. The Walking Dead. And, and, And I remember this professor saying, if you've not been saved by God, although you may physically appear to be alive, The reality is, you're dead. You're just dead. You're already dead. You may be walking, you may be uh, breathing, but you're dead. And the reason we're dead is because of our trespasses and sins. And then he uses past and present tense stuff, in which you formally walked. These are Christians. You formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the earth. Basically, he said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins because you were following Satan. When we're dead in our trespasses and sins, Everything that we're doing is satanic. It just is. It just is. That's what it is. If it's of the earth or secular or fleshly, it's demonic. It's dark. It's satanic. And he he clears that up. And he said, and now you were, and now it's still alive. It's working in the sons of disobedience. And then he says, that's who we were. We formerly lived in the, the lust of our flesh. And so the picture for every person that's ever been born is a picture of a dead man, dead woman, dead child, dead because of our trespasses and sins. And if you want to know what that walk looked like, it was a course in this world according to the prince of the power of the air. It's satanic. And what does it do? It creates a son of dis- a child of disobedience and it then what's the motivation? The lust of our flesh. The lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If you believe that, if you believe that doctrinal truth about who anyone is without Christ, that's an impossible situation. What could you do? You're dead. You can't. I can't, we can't, you couldn't do anything about it, but here's the but, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You should continue to read that. But what God did is just like what he told his followers with man, things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. An impossible situation made possible, first point, because of the rich mercy and the great love. Now the word that word great means in the Greek it's megalos. And so, for you and I to try to understand that, the megalos means it's mega. So, you and I may think of things in terms of something being great, and it's just different levels of that. So, in the Greek, though, the word is, it's mega, it's megalos, it's, it's superior, it's large, it's giga- it's huge. So, his love is megalos, and it's based upon mercy, Mercy. Now, churches want to say, God takes the impossible, makes it possible because of, yes, his megalos, his great love, but it's based upon mercy. As I read this verse, and this is my first challenge, this is the first challenge of, uh, of this letter to the Ephesians and you and I today, is if we understand how dead I am in my sins and, and what God, and the condition that I was, it's satanic. And then the thing that God did, but God, in this impossible situation, he did something on the basis of mercy. Now, Jesus would teach about a person who's forgiven much and a person who's forgiven little. But there's no, it's a bit facetious. Only a man could think that he is forgiven little. Only a man could think that he is forgiven little. But it's what we do. Uh, We talked about that in class this morning. We can't help it. We just are going to classify sins. We'll do it. It was part of the conversation with the rich young ruler. He said, which commands? Well, this one. Honor your mother and father. You know, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. And so there's the list. Okay, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't stolen from anybody. I've not. In fact, he says, uh, don't slander anyone. So I've not bore, bore false witness. I've not slandered. I've not stolen. I've not committed adultery. I've not committed murder. Check, check, check. I'm good. Got it. Honor your mother and father. Check. I've got it. And Jesus is just in his interaction. He's just setting him up. There's over 600 laws in the book of Leviticus. He quoted to him less than right at 1%. What, what percentage would he quote in your life? If you and I had the audacity to go to him and say, uh, what, in this capitalist mentality, what must I do to obtain eternal life? If we had that this mentality and we would go before the Lord and then he would say, well, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. But since you've asked, keep the commandments. And then the audacity. And where does the audacity come from? A sense of pride. That we actually think that we have some, I kind of need to know which ones because I'm pretty sure I'm keeping these. Maybe I need to work on these. There's an audacity that comes from that. And he said, but which ones? He said, okay, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Check, 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 six. There's six of them, I got that going on. But then he asked the next question. So what, listen, just in case, is there anything else that I'm lacking? Now, my personal belief is he wanted to go to the Lord. He got an affirmation. There's already an audience there. Jesus' disciples are there. And, uh, and I think he wanted an affirmation. Maybe he really did think, well, is there something else I lack? Maybe in his capitalist mentality, okay, I've got those. Check, check, check. I've never murdered anybody. I committed adultery. I don't steal. I've not bore a false witness against anyone. Uh, I've honored my mother and father. Okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, Just in case, is there anything I'm missing? Yeah. Sell your possessions. I don't know what the Lord would say to you. I don't know. I should know what he would say to me. If we're honest, if we're examining ourselves. In many ways, we're probably just like that rich young ruler. We'll say, you know what? And this is what we do. It's what we do. It's just what we do. Well, I might have done this, but you did this. If you've never done that, raise your hand. If you've never said to anyone that you know in your close proximity, family, friend, foe, enemy, uh, in an argument with anybody, and you say, yeah, I might have done that, but you did this. Have you ever, if you've never done that, raise your hand. Okay, so we're all in agreement. We've all done that. Now, so what we do... That's what we do, isn't it? We classify sin. Well, I may have done this, but, but I've never done that. So I can feel pretty good about myself. So there must be some level of understanding in this whole sin deal that qualifies me to be a little better person than you. So what else have I, I, in case I'm missing something, sell your possessions. You know what Jesus Christ will allow you to do and what God will allow you to do? He will allow you to have your possessions under the false premise that you actually think they're your possessions. One of the great stories is Abraham and Lot in the Old Testament. And the herds had grown and they're in this wonderful fertile land and there's tension between the two herdsmen and, uh, Abraham, who really is in a position of power, said, Lot, we can't continue to do that. What do you want to Listen, choose, choose. And and so what does Lot do? He chooses the best land there is. He said, I want to, you're right, Abraham, things are tense between us. There's not enough land for all of our flocks. Family members are fighting. Employees are not getting along. People are taking sides. So I want to tell you what, we want the Brazos Valley. You go live out there in Fort Stockton. Or Arizona. That's what he did. And Abraham was so secure in his understanding of his possessions. Okay. All right. But so the scripture and our relationship with God is always confronting us with what you and I think that we have actually earned. And that is actually ours. And so, God will always confront us just as He did that. He said, Go and sell your possessions. God would never ask you to sell anything that that God has entitled you to that you fully understand hey, this ain't mine, it's God's. I just have it because He's allowed me to have it. There's no problem there. But we do that in our pride and our selfishness. And, you know, the scripture says, seek ye first his kingdom and all these things will be added to us. Our problem is we're building and keeping and protecting our kingdom. And that's where the selfishness comes from. And so he went away sad. And you go back to this rich in mercy, God being rich in mercy, in this impossible situation. What would he say to you and I? How much mercy has God given you how much mercy has he given me because the mercy that is required is mercy that will take us from an impossible situation to a possible situation The situation because of our transgression and our sin, I don't know if it's what you think is just a little bit here, and that's a real bad one over here. God doesn't qualify it that way, but it is an impossible situation. But because of the rich mercy and the megalos love of God, which in which he loved us through his son, he did the impossible. He saved us. He made it possible. The next one, number two. He goes down here and he's talking. And he's making this statement because he's speaking to Gentiles and Jews, the same chapter. There's this word, therefore, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles of the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, now here's, here's the impossible situation. This is an impossible situation. And, and it would do us well if we understood what God has done for us in our salvation. Because again, if, if the first list doesn't get you. Dead in trespasses and sins. Sons of disobedience. Living in the lust of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh. Children of wrath. If that one doesn't get you, maybe this one will. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And if it doesn't get any more clear, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to stop for just a moment briefly. Um, How, ask yourself, how great a work has God done in your life in saving you? What did he save you from? Were you doing him a favor by allowing him to save you? I ask those questions because I've seen it prevalent. There's a prevalent mindset in Christianity. It is a prevailing and prevalent and evident mindset. That, and, and you can see it in attitudes and personalities and behavior, a cavalier attitude from anything. From church attendance to the way we treat one another to what we put in first in our life. If a person really, once again, Jesus told this story, he who has forgiven much loves much. He who has forgiven little is thankful just a little because they think, yeah, I was saved, but I really wasn't that bad. It didn't require much work, obviously, for God. And although you may not say it, we do say it with our attitude. Because if we really believe what Paul said about himself, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. He said, I I have to die to sin daily. He said that in that seventh chapter, he said, oh, wretched man that I am who will free me from this body of death. Oh, wretched man that I am. And he had started that passage. Why do I do the very thing that I don't want to do? The good that I would do, I find that I cannot do. I find then that the principle of evil dwells within me. The one who wishes to do good talking about himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, chief of all sinners, having to die to sin daily. What if an entire church, and then the entire church, the body of Christ, from the southern tip of Africa to uh, the farthest northern corner of Canada, uh, from Russia to uh, America and every continent in the world, what if the body of Christ really believed, truly believed, absolutely believed, and I'm serious. If we walked around with the spiritual, intellectual, emotional knowledge and not, not concerned about Patsy, not concerned about A.Y., not concerned about Lorna, not concerned about me, 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 me. Aubrey, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked a satanic course. You lived according to the lust of your flesh. You indulged the desires of your flesh. I was a child of wrath. And then if it doesn't get any worth, I was never even a part of God's original plan and what it had to do with the called out people, the commonwealth of Israel. I was just a Gentile. Now his plan was in place, but there was a reality that thought, there's no hope. I'm without God. What if you really believe that? What if you really believe that? What if you and I really believe that? See, I'm convinced that we don't really believe that. Not so much in that maybe we've never really thought about it, but we've never weighed it personally. And what you say, I'd look at the action. The way this is written to Christians. It's written to Christians. The truth about us is not very encouraging. If we're honest, the encouragement comes from what God has done. And here it is. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm not going to get to my third point this morning. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Um, This has to do with atonement. I don't know how familiar you are with what Jesus did on the cross in Calgary. Of course, we associate it with the Passover. and It had to do with the Passover lamb, and that's another sermon for another day. But I hope that you're aware of that uh, as God would free his children, uh, Israel, from Egyptian bondage, and uh, what was required of them to take the blood of a sacrificed lamb, put it over their doorpost, and then death would pass them by. They would be saved because of the blood of a lamb. But if you're familiar with what else was accomplished, the premier accomplishment on the, on the day that Jesus was uh, killed was that uh, over a thousand years before Golgotha, over a thousand years before they nailed him to the cross, God, in his word, put um, the law, uh, the requirements for atonement. And if you understand what an atonement is, that sin had to be atoned for. That your sin and my sin had to be atoned for. And, um, And there's a great statement about the reality of atonement. A price has to be paid, a sacrifice has to be made. And it's a, a sacrificial lamb. It's a lamb. And his blood, he's sacrificed. And there's even another dimension that has to do with a scapegoat. But, but I want you to read verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. By the way, you want to follow some science? Was, we're hearing that catchphrase a lot in our culture today, follow the science. <laughs> Follow the science of blood, just blood. All the brilliant minds in the world today and all the phlebotomists and all the doctors and all the, they can tell you, you know, well, it's this type of blood and this, but they don't understand how it works. There's life in the blood. Your life that is now giving you the ability to think and feel and touch and smell and walk is because of something in the blood, The scientists will tell you this, but the Bible already knew it and Moses wrote it for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Read that again for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by the reason of the life that makes atonement. So when you go back to people that are without hope, they're without hope. They're excluded from God. And that would be you and I, without hope, separate from God, excluded. But God, what did he do when you and I were formerly, who were formerly were far off, have been, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The life of everything is in the blood. The reason that the life Of everything is in the blood because the blood then would be the basis for the atonement of your soul and my soul so what happened on the day of Golgotha was the Lamb of God was crucified and it wasn't his death that saved you and I it was yes we're not saved without his death But it was his blood. His atoning blood. The impossible situation for you and I is that there's no hope and we're without God in the world. The possible work of God. Even though we were far off and that word far off, it doesn't, you read far off, there's nothing far off in your life anymore. I, I don't know how long it would take, but it wouldn't take very long. I don't think even a day to get on a plane and fly to Japan. Well, there's nothing far off anymore, is there? Not really. And do you think that less than 200 years ago, this country was established by people in wagon trains that could only go maybe eight, ten miles a day, you and I can get in a car and go pretty much anywhere we want. We can cross this country. But it's just, we can just, there's nothing far off anymore. There's no piece of information that's far off anymore. You can just Google all that information. I got that answer. Nothing's far off. But just so you know how big and great and terrible our sin is, this word far off means here is that you cannot see it and you cannot measure it. We can measure stuff. We can just go to Google Maps. They couldn't. My prayer for myself and for this church for the body of Christ is that we've try to fully understand the impossible situation that we have been in. But God did something that only he could do to make things possible for us. I want to ask you something and I have to start with me. Do I live my life? Do you live your life according to the impossible truth about who we are and the possible thing that God did in our life? Does our life indicate that? Does it? We talked about fruit this morning, but I'm serious. I mean, this is a gut check. If you really believe that You are a child of wrath, a son of disobedient, dead in your trespasses and sin. I don't think, I don't think the church, many of them, I don't believe that we really do. I don't believe we really, I think we have dumbed down the gospel so much. I really believe that. That somehow we think, yeah, I'll accept Jesus in my heart. I'll do him a favor. I like to pay off. And I know I'm a sinner, but you know. I'm not like those drug addicts over there or those alcoholics or those gang members or the people in the penitentiary or the woman of the well or the woman caught in adultery or the prostitutes and the tax gatherers and the sinners that Jesus met with. And I need saving, but I mean, if if we really understand the third chapter of Romans... Just read the third chapter of Romans. There's no, not one that does good. Nothing, not one of us. That's an impossible situation, isn't it, before a holy God? If you really believe that. And by the way, the most depressing teaching in the Bible, and it is the most depressing, there's, not, I don't think there's even a close second. You know, Paul tells the Philippians that each of us has to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do we, are we doing that? I mean, do do you even act like somebody who's working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do I? Well, you can tell by the deeds and the fruit. But the most frightening is Matthew in twenty-five, chapter twenty-five. He said, There's going to be people that say to me, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, Depart from me. I didn't know you. And then he tells, he lets you know what it is. You should read it. I'm not, I'm not going to preach the sermon this morning. But you can best be well sure of one thing. That there will be people that, that say to him, Lord, Lord. People that go to church, people that would know him as Lord, people that sing the hymns, people that like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Thank you for God for not making me like other men. I'm a man, I keep the law, I even tithe. It's the smallest thing. Oh, but but there was a sinner. And he said, Dear Lord God Almighty, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, That man went away justified. But the other group is those people that say, Lord, Lord. He said, Depart from me. I don't know you. My personal belief is there are churches that are meeting all over the world. My personal belief. The fuel of people that have convinced themselves that they're right at some level. And then it justifies their behavior at some level. And they've never looked at the truth of the impossible situation that we have been born into. We've been born in iniquity, Psalm 51. If we really look in the mirror, really look in the mirror. I think, and if we understood who we are, the impossible situation of who we are and the possible thing that God did for us, I I really believe we would be more humble. We would be more forgiving. We would be more merciful. We'd be gentler and kinder and more patient. But God, being rich in mercy, You and I should be the most merciful, forgiving people in the world. You and I should be the most merciful, forgiving people in the world. I wonder if the church is seen that way. But God, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your rich mercy and the great love that you have loved us with. I cannot imagine um, what it must have been like when you saw the blood of your son pouring uh, the life out of him. I, I have tried to understand what it meant this atonement the life that is in the blood and because of that there's atonement in it and I cannot in my heart of hearts imagine trying to understand that father what happened that day on Golgotha and that my sins were atoned for And in this impossible situation, as a wretched man, a wretched man, the blood of your son atoned for my sin, for our sin. And we give you praise and honor for that. I hope we give you more praise and more honor by the very actions of our life. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you.